If you have a Bible this morning, I want to encourage you to go to John chapter 2. John chapter 2 this morning. We're going to continue in our series that I am preaching through, the Gospel of John. We're going to look at the conversations with Christ. And as we come on this first Sunday of March, believe it or not, we've started the third month of 2017. I don't know about you, but the older I get, the faster time flies. And uh, it's already March. But I want to talk to you this morning about a subject called joy that never runs out. And so I want to start by asking you a question, and I'd really love you to marinate in this because I'm hoping that this sermon will help this table of the Lord mean something new for you today, something deeper. As we move beyond routine and we move beyond just route activity, I want to ask you this question. Are you... Are you joyful and satisfied with life? Are you joyful in life and are you satisfied with life? Let me tell you, that's the $64 million question of society today. In fact, I just read an article this, uh, just in the last 24 hours, a brother Jeff sent me from the Gospel Coalition about the country of Iceland being one of the most unchristian countries of Europe and it un- uncanny the similarities between Iceland and Newfoundland. And it, isn't it amazing that in the West, for all of our success, all of our medical advances, all of our freedom, the search for joy... The meaning for life and being satisfied with life is often at an all-time low. Just ask doctors and pharmacists and psychologists and psychiatrists. Now, when I say, are you joyful and satisfied, I am not talking about, all right, this weekend I'm going to tear one off and go on a bender. All right, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about tickets to watch Brad Guju maybe bring the tankard briar home to Newfoundland for the first time since 1976. Now that's some, some freaky deaky trivia that I'm aware of that you didn't know I knew, right? I'm not talking about going to a hockey game or having a pile of people over to your house, having a big family get together. I'm not talking about joy where you watch that show Just for Laughs or you go down to the Arts and Culture Center and take in Buddy Wass's name and the other fellas and you get laughing to where your stomach hurts and so you can just forget about all your problems. And I'm not talking about where you get together with a bunch of buddies or a bunch of friends and you start telling stories of the good old days and you laugh and you remember them and for at least for an evening you forget about your pain, your sorrow and your dissatisfaction. You see, the world's definition of joy is party. Just watch the commercials. I mean, listen, man, Bear has got it. Like, I, I get it. I'm amazed by Bear commercials. According to Bear commercials, if you crack one, an instant party starts. I mean, that's every Bear commercial ever made. I mean, honestly, they, these, I mean, remember the ones, remember they, you, you crack it and these guys, what's up, you know, and, they, and that you just take that with you into every area of life and you're on the phone, what's up, everything. If you're cracking beer, you got a great body, great girls want you, you got money, it's a party. It's all right to laugh, go ahead, laugh. Jumpins, the world's motto is eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. Isn't it? That's the world. 
And guess what? They hacked it from the Bible. Isaiah 22.10 says, Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. The world even hacks the Bible for its own models. What I'm talking about is having a lasting, settled, mind-calming, soul-stirring, eternal joy. The one thing I've learned in my 45 years of life is that here in the West, many people are afraid of silence. Mm. They're afraid of quiet. They're afraid of their own thoughts. And that includes too many professing Christians. Too many folks are afraid of downtime. Oh, everybody wants it, but nobody will do anything to have it. I think the reason we struggle so much with Bible reading and prayer is that we're truly afraid of what the Bible will tell us about ourselves. Or we read it so fast that our thoughts and our doubts and our questions drown out the very word of God we're trying to read. Do you know how many times people come, Pastor, I've tried reading the Bible, I'm getting nothing out of it. Well, that's probably because you're too busy listening to your own thoughts instead of actually bringing in what you're reading. And all of this, all of it, is the deceit of Satan. It's the weakness of our flesh, and it's the pride of the world. Satan tells us, God is trying to keep something from you. That's his M.O. He'll always tell you, see, if you obey him, if you trust him, trust me, he's holding something back. Go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. That's exactly what his M.O. was. Our flesh craves pleasure and comfort and ease. We're afraid. Everybody knows that, you know, uh, no no pain, no gain, but nobody really wants it. Why do we live in a fast food world? And the world tells us ultimately that we are God. That's what the world's system is, that we get to choose what is right and wrong. And has there ever been a time in human history where that's not true today in the Western culture? We're all our own little God. I determine what's right and wrong. And it's purely based on my feelings. Get this, at the time. I don't even have to be consistent with my feelings. What is right for me today may be wrong for me tomorrow, depending on how I feel. That's the world. And of course, all of this are lies. Nothing ever truly pays off. We're always in this endless cycle of trying to drown out the noise of our discontentment or party away our fears or simply plug our ears like young little kids go, going la, 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 pretending that something's not wrong even though we're scared out of our minds. Have you ever seen kids do that? Especially if the, you know, the parents are out and the babysitter's in, they think that there's monsters in the closet and they hear something, they just think, if I plug my ears, go, la, 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 then it's not true. Do you know how many adults do that in life? (laughs) But oh my, Calvary, how we lie to ourselves and listen to the lies of Satan in the world. I've often thought what I would do if God came to me like he came to Solomon and said, Steve, what do you want? And Solomon asked for wisdom. I really think that if I was in a mind state of wanting to be what God wants, if God said that to me, I'd ask, just free me and the people I do life with from the lies of ourselves, the world, and Satan. Just help us to see the truth. 
Have you ever really considered what the Bible says about all this? In Romans chapter 14, verse 17, uh, Paul says this, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. So there you go, right? Eat, drink, and be merry, for the more you die. Right away, we know then that that motto is not the Bible's motto. Because Paul says the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Now, the stare at that verse, all right, because I think it's on the screen, stare at that verse for a few seconds and consider deeply what you think Paul meant and what God wants you and I to see and then do. How should you respond? If that's an axiom of truth, to use a, a geometrical uh, expression, if that's an axiom of truth, the Bible here tells us that the kingdom of God, what it isn't, and then tells us what it is. Now, I know that we can often get caught up in the temporary, but this verse says it's not the temporary, but the eternal. And many of us would say, if I talked to you, if I had the time, many of you would say, Pastor Steve, listen, man, I have worked hard at that righteousness gig. I know I'm supposed to live a certain way. I get it. I know there's a morality God wants us, and I'm trying. And some of you may have even prayed for, longed for, and worked for peace. Some of you want it. Some of you have even maybe traveled to Israel. I've gotten to go there and gone up to the, to the Western Wall, and you write little prayer requests on them, and you fold up these pieces of paper, and they're jammed into all of the crevices of the wall. And this is what people from all over the world do. And many, many of those things say, I pray for the peace of Israel. How many of you have not prayed and said, oh Lord, would you just bring peace? How many of you not wanted it? But what I'm curious to know is how many of you fight for joy in your life? The way you would fight for righteousness or peace. The Presbyterian pastor J.M. Boyce made this incredible statement. He said, but as I look around or about at contemporary Christianity, it seems to me that many are sadly lacking in joy. They have the doctrine right and are even secure in salvation. But there is none of the supernatural joy and exuberance that is one of the outward marks of the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ in a Christian. Why is it, to quote an old fundamentalist group, Patch the Pirate, do so many Christians suffer from poochie lip disease? Or as the great... George Johnson, the cathedral quartet, said, y'all look like you've been hit in the face with a dead rabbit or something. And that was funny. You could have laughed out loud there, all right? That was just funny. Uh, yeah, Chrissy's laughing really good out the back. Just let it all out, Chrissy. Don't, don't hold it in. Just let it out. Now, I don't know about you, but the last time I read my Bible, Galatians 5, starting in verse 20, tells me that joy is a fruit of the Spirit. Is that right? Amen. Somebody's alive and maybe not a full Baptist. <laughs> David, right? King David, who suffered. Now get, get King David, all right? He suffered. He was betrayed. He sinned. He saw his family blow up. He loved God but failed him. He saw his nation rise and then fall. He wanted to build a temple but was told to wait. But here are his words in Psalm 1611. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Like, I don't know about you, but that doesn't even make sense, does it? Does that make sense? And then there's the book of John. 
Or sorry, in Psalm 33, David again would say, Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. In the book of John, chapter 15, listen to Jesus when he says, John 15, 11, These things have I spoken to you, why? That my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Now, don't miss that. Don't miss the sequence of events there. His thing is, I have written the Bible to you. I have given you my word so that his joy will be in you. And when you have his joy in you, then your joy is full. Do you get that? So you don't get to define what joy is. God does. He tells you. He says, when I put myself in you, then your joy will be full. And then he goes on, and this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Oh, and by the way, in the context of that verse, in just a few hours from that verse, the 12 disciples, well, one's already betrayed them, the other 11 would scatter. And then as they lived life, they would preach, be largely rejected, and every one of them but one would be killed for following Jesus. And he says, I've given you this, that my joy may be in you, and your joy might be full. It might amaze you, that the word joy and the network of words around it is used 141 times in 133 verses in the Old Testament and 62 times in 60 verses in the New Testament. I don't know about you, that that would make me think that the Bible wants you and I to know what biblical joy is all about. And so, with all this preamble, I think we can all admit, whether you're ready to do it out loud or not, that we are all looking for joy. We all want it. We crave it. Let's be honest. We even need it. There's not one of you here that can't say, I need, I don't need joy. In fact, anybody who says to me, I don't need joy, you look at them and you're like, you're the poster boy for who needs joy. But the tragedy is in our world, so few seem to find it. Oh, we find fleeting joy. But what is the joy the Bible speaks of? How could Jesus have joy when facing death? David had it when he faced his failure. Paul said with joy for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. Stephen looked into heaven with a face of an angel and forgiveness for those who were killing him with joy that made the crowd more angry and many more bewildered. In fact, when you come to the table of communion today, I'd love to know how many of you actually approach it with joy instead of seeing it as some masochistic time where we try to jam a month's worth of confession so we can feel clean enough and worthy enough to partake in it. And may I say, that's to miss the value of it completely. So now I want you to go to John chapter 2. And I've been really watching this. I'm going to watch the clock because I know we got communion. I may get to the end of this. I may not. So this may be just pre previews of coming attractions. And in John chapter 2, verses 1 to 11, specifically, we're going to read about this sign, this first sign. The Gospel of John is made up of seven signs and culminates with an eighth one. And the eighth sign is the actual resurrection of Jesus. Okay? But don't forget this, okay? The purpose of the Gospel of John, John chapter 20. Now, Jesus did many other signs 
in the presence of the disciples. So John is letting you know at the end, look, I picked out seven in particular, culminating with an eighth one. I mean, it's really got eight signs. Seven he handpicks. All right, in John chapter 2, verses 1 to 11, it's the first one. But he says, many other signs he did, but these are not written in the book. And he says, but I picked these. These are written, and here's why I picked these. So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And here is the result of you believing. That by believing, you may have life in his name. And you could easily substitute that word life for, you may have joy in his name. That's what he's saying. So let me read the passage and let me just remind you of a couple of things. John chapter 2, starting in verse 1. John says, on the third day, so keep a note, that means a seven-day week has elapsed, starting back in John chapter 119 to chapter 2, verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also, now notice, was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. So his mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you to do, basically. Do whatever he tells you. Then you get the context Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification. If you write in your Bible, highlight this, because this is a key statement in this passage. These six water jars that are there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. So in total, you got somewhere between 120 and 180 gallons of water. Take note of that. Verse 7, Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And notice this, and they filled them up to the brim. So, I mean, they, they were going to get what their money's worth of whatever was about to happen. <laughs> and he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, notice the brackets, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you, you have kept the good wine until now. Now, Get this, verse 11. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and here's why, and manifested his glory, and here's the result, and his disciples believed in him. And after this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. And may God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Now, I want you to get a couple of things. All right? Notice beginning in verse 1, on the third day. All right? So Calvary family, I want you to realize, if you're visiting here and you haven't been with me through this series, John the Apostle, who writes the Gospel of John, starts in John chapter 1, and starting in verse 19 through 211, he starts with creation, just like Moses did in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. See, God created in six days, and then he rested. The reason he rested is that it was all very good, and it brought him glory. That's what we're told in Genesis 1 and 2. Well, here... 
But we know, right? I don't have to tell you this. We all know that humanity is ruined. Right? If any, and, any of you, and, and if any of you seriously want to disagree with me on that one, talk to me afterwards because I'll very quickly prove you wrong because I'll just punch you. And, and then that, that'll prove it, right? <laughs> and so you might deny it outwardly that humanity is not ruined, but your conscience or simply being alive will not allow you to truly believe that man is getting better or is basically good. Heck, I don't, I don't need to look any deeper than me to figure that out, right? I just look in the mirror and realize and think about my anger, my hypocrisy, my selfishness, my pride, and I get to look at this angry, proud, sinful, selfish face every day. The truth is we are helpless, but John, in 1.19 through 2.12, the apostle, John the Apostle is yelling out, Oh, we are helpless, but we are not hopeless. Oh, if I could get you to walk out of here and remember that. Every one of you here is helpless. You are as helpless as an infant trying to save its own life. All you can do is lay there in your own stink and mess and hungriness and cry. But you can't do a thing to fix it. But because of Christ, you're not hopeless. In fact, there's nobody hopeless. Why? Because Jesus Christ has come. Amen? Right. Yeah, you're big believers. So here we have the week of recreation. Jesus has come with witnesses and power. He is calling and approachable. He teaches and he loves. He knows each of us as we are. But think of it. On day one, back in chapter one, verse 19, John the Baptist testifies, look to Jesus. On day two, John the Baptist points to Jesus. On day three, Andrew and John approach Jesus. On day four, Andrew brings Peter to Jesus. On day five, Philip is called by Jesus and Nathaniel comes to be known by Jesus. On day six, these six disciples travel with Jesus. And now we come to day seven in chapter two and something spectacular happens. Have you seen it yet? Are you putting all the dots? Day seven is the wedding of Canaan. Cana. It's the hometown of Nathaniel, by the way. Remember when he, when he says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And we're told that Cana is his hometown. And Jesus with his six disciples, with his mother and maybe some of his siblings, and who knows how many other people are there. And it's here that Jesus' public ministry starts with this sign. So number one, if you're taking notes, I want you to notice the setting of joy. I want you to see the setting of of joy in their passage there is a wedding it's the wedding the wedding feast has come and i've already spent a great deal of time but a wedding is meant to be a joyful event it's really weird if someone says do you want to go to a wedding my son's getting married you want you want to go like you already know if someone does that you're like something's freakishly wrong because that's normally not how you get invited to a wedding, right? Weddings are meant to be joyful events. And we, we see that Jesus is invited to come with his disciples. Now listen, I could spend all morning on why was Jesus invited. Do you know, commentators have written entire books about this. Why did he come? Was it because of Mary? Was it because of Nathaniel? Was it because he had been previously invited? <laughs> Who cares? 
The, the text tells me he was invited. So I'm, I'm inclined to go, he was invited. Last time I went to a wedding, I was invited. And so I went. I mean, the passage says it. Jesus was invited. I, I don't know why people need to write about this. It's right there. So I'm not going to spend any more time on it than that. All right? He got invited. <laughs> but it's a joyful event. Charles Spurgeon, that old English pastor, said this. And I don't know how to say this word. Steve Doc can yell it out if I butcher it. Sepulchral tones. There you go. All right. I, yeah, I've got to ask Chris from now. Sepulchral. There you go. Tones. All I know is I don't think that's good. All right? May fit a man to be an undertaker. But Lazarus is not called out of his grave by hollow moans. I commend cheerfulness to all who would win souls. A wedding is a joyful event. It's meant to be a happy time. You see, Jesus is giving his approval of marriage while also making himself known. But let's be sure we understand what's happening. The wedding feast of the first century Jewish person was different from ours today. Okay? See, I got a wedding invitation this week. I got it via email, which told me again, I'm in a new world because I didn't get the fancy envelope with the smelly stuff on it and you, the wax seal and the strings and the doilies hanging off, which normally when it comes, I go, Deb, this is for you. All right? But this one, I got tricked. I was an email and I opened it up and then it was just pictures of doilies and strings and flowers and stuff. And I almost felt I had to lean in and sniff the computer. All right? But I was invited to go to a wedding. And I was invited to go to, it listed a church, and then it told me a venue where I'm going to go eat. But I will tell you, the picture of the couple, they're not like, come to our wedding. Like the picture is them like all in this beautifully posed kissy kissy thing like, like this, right? Like that was what the pose is. And you know they've never kissed like that in their lives. But somebody told them, well, we're going to make this romantic. So, and I don't know why we got to kick the leg up when we do it. Because it just looks cheesy and stupid. All right? But that was the picture of what I got. All right? But that's not how a Jewish wedding went. In a Jewish wedding, a wedding feast took place at the couple's home. And it normally lasted a week. You stayed there. And the groom was responsible for everything. And his best man was the master of ceremonies. When you read in this, they went to the master and then he called the groomsman. The master is probably someone like the best friend of the family or the best friend of the groom, almost like what we would call our best man. And he functioned as the master of ceremonies, which is why he then goes to the groomsman, which is the guy getting married. So we have a happy, joyful event, an event with much planning, invited guests, it's public, reputations are on the line, it's supposedly to go perfect, and in the midst of the laughter and fun, something happens that has happened to us all. Because we have the setting of joy, and then we have the setback to joy. You have the setback to joy. Because if you notice in our passage, it says in verse 3, and when the wine ran out, the, woman, the, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. This was the setback. Now again, we struggle to get the significance of our, this situation in our day. Because for us, running out of something hardly seems like a joy killer. Because you can just go to Marie's. There's always a Marie's open somewhere in this city 24-7. And more and more, Marie's has everything under the sun. Now at a highly jacked up price, but you can get it. Okay? But you got to realize 
you got to get the picture because I know that at my wedding, all of the effort that Debbie and I, mostly Debbie, um, put into it and thought about behind the ceremony and the speeches. But yet for all of the effort that Debbie and I spent, the stacks of wedding magazines that Deb bought, that if I'd have saved the money, I'd be retired right now. Um, no, no, that's, that's not true. Um, but we spent a lot of time and energy planning every detail of our wedding down to the minute detail. And you know, we'll be married 25 years, and when still I'm with my wedding party, you know what they say to me the most? Buy some good meal. They don't talk at all about Deb's dress. They have nothing about the ceremony, nothing about the speeches, nothing about what we did or how, how we wove the thing together. Steve, boy, I had full turkey dinner and they offered me seconds. That was awesome, boy. And then we had crepes for dessert. That was deadly, right? That's all they talk about is the meal. No one talks about the flowers. Nobody talks about the bouquet. Nobody talked about my Jordan, Michael Jordan collection tux with the baggy pants that went tight to the ankle. That was cool. Don't stare at me like I'm weird. And what's more, we read various things that the Bible has to say about wine, and then we're even more confused. Because the rabbis of the first century would say this, without wine, there is no joy. That was a common statement. Isaiah, or sorry, we see the symbolism of wine in Psalm 104.15, which praises the Lord. Wine that gladdens the heart of man. Isaiah, Psalm, Psalm 104.15. In Judges, we're told that Jotham recited a parable about the trees of the forest to the men of Shechem, in which the vine declined to rule in the forest because it said, Should I give up my wine which cheers both gods and men who hold sway over the trees? In Isaiah 55.1, Isaiah the prophet would quote God and said, Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. All through the Bible, wine is actually spoken of in a good way. So in the first century, to run out of wine would almost been the equivalent of admitting that neither the guest nor the bride or groom were happy or sufficient or could actually provide for what they started out with. And I need you to work with me to avoid the stigma of our day and the controversy, again, of whether or not we should drink or not. Because many people come to this, and just like many people have written all kinds of books on why was Jesus at this wedding, many other people write books about whether or not this was real wine and should you drink wine and all of this stuff. And again, who cares? It's to miss the point. All right, this is not a sermon about whether you should drink or not. I'm going to report to you what are the events here and the purpose of this sign. Basically, this is the fact that a wedding is meant to be joyful, meant to be joyous, and that every detail is accounted for and planned, and that all who come would be taken care of, and that it's the desire of every bride and groom for it to be a happy day, and that everyone who comes is happy and speaks well, and you all know what it's like when something you've planned for goes horribly wrong. And so when you go back to the passage Go back to me with Mary's original statement and she says to her son Jesus, they have no wine. They have no wine. That is a statement of condemnation of the groom and his ability to plan and provide. It's an insult to his guests. It's even opened up the groom to a lawsuit. Guests could sue him because they have come to something and he's ill-prepared. 
But remember, this is a sign. And there's an obvious issue, but John is trying to get us to see it. And I want you to try and think of if she had said, Jesus, they have no joy. Or what if we put it down and we said, they have no Jesus. Never forget that this recording of this miracle is meant to be assigned to something spiritual. There's a spiritual ramification to this. And so thirdly, we come to the source of joy. The source of joy. Jesus is approached by his mother and she basically gives him information and Jesus makes a pretty startling response, right? When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. I love this interplay. And there's so many ways that you and I can get it wrong. Okay, don't read into this passage a couple of things. First, Mary doesn't control or even influence Jesus. Okay, this is not Mary coming to Jesus saying, I am your mother and you will do what I tell you to do. All right, and this doesn't make her co-equal with Jesus. It doesn't make her co-redemptive with Jesus or anything. She simply comes to him and says, look, I know that you have power to fix things. And she actually is coming to Jesus. The posture of the language is one of submission but need. And Jesus isn't disrespectful when he says woman. Believe it or not, in the original language, it's actually a term of endearment. Later when he hung from the cross, he would look at his mother and say, woman, behold your son. He wasn't being disrespectful. But notice Jesus says, what has this got to do with me? My hour has not yet come. This is not him being unwilling to help. He's making her understand because he uses this phrase seven times in the Gospel of John. Folks, get used to the number seven. John uses it a lot in this Gospel. There are the seven signs. The seven times he says, my hour has not yet come. There's the seven I am statements of the Gospel of John. Basically, whenever he says, my hours yet not let come, he's saying, I am not ready for the cross. Jesus is telling his mother Mary, my time to accomplish why I'm here is not now. But notice Mary's words, do whatever he tells you. Do whatever he tells you. Her, her attitude is, again, one of submission and obedience. She's saying, she's talking to her son and then saying, listen, whatever he tells you, to trust him. No matter how stupid it sounds, no matter how silly it looks, no matter how un- uncomprehensible it seems, just do. She shows both submission and evangelism and discipleship. She's going to Jesus, I need help. I can't help them, but I know you can. And then she says to everybody else, do whatever he says. Guys, don't you realize that's evangelism? Evangelism is just, can I tell you about Jesus? And when I do, just do whatever he tells you to do. Because that's what I'm doing. That's what it is. Now watch this. Look at the passage again. Jesus performs the miracle of turning water into wine. But what kind of wine or quality of wine was it? Was it? it wasn't just some wine. It was good wine. In fact, it, it, was, it was the best wine. I mean, this freaked everybody out. When the master of ceremonies gets a sip of this, he's like, go get the groom. Go get the groom. I find that fascinating. He doesn't ask the dudes that gave it to him, where'd this come from? Because that's why you got that little parenthesis there that in, the, in the parenthesis and they said that the, the guys knew but he didn't know and he calls the groom and he says, what are you doing? I've never been at a wedding like this. Normally you get your best stuff because first impressions, 
Normally you're doling out the good stuff and then when everybody is kind of drunk, uh, not drunk as in drunk drunk, but as in drunk, they've drunk wine, that, you know, kind of like they've had the taste of good stuff so you can subtly ease in the cheaper stuff and people don't notice. But you don't do it the other way around because that makes it obvious. Which also, by the way, tells you that these people weren't plastered. Because I've been around drunk people and they don't know if they're drinking acid or water or wine or beer. They just know they're taking it in. Okay? So don't, for those of you that want to panic, there's nobody drunk here because they've got full use of their senses. But I want you to notice it was the best wine. In other words, John, James says in James 1.17, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. See, Jesus himself preached in the Sermon on the Mountain If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask in Matthew 7, 11? So, now I want you to look at the amount of wine. Six pots, 20 to 30 gallons of water. That's a lot of wine. Okay? Now again, I could spend all morning on this too. Was it real wine or was it Welch's grape juice? Well, Welch wasn't alive back then. So I definitely can definitively tell you it wasn't grape juice. You can get into, is this passage an endorsement of drinking? None of which I'm going to do because I don't want you to miss the point. In his commentary on John, William Barclay, that old Englishman says, he is startled by the amount of wine. And he's actually put off. He says, this is crude literalness. But I'm going to differ because he says here, no wedding party on earth could drink 180 gallons of wine. And I wanted to say, if he was alive today, you haven't been to a Newfoundland wedding. (laughs) But even in Newfoundland, nobody is packing or pounding back 180 gallons of wine. That is a lot of wine. And while I think that it's a great point, I differ. I think the amount here is literal. Remember what Jesus says in John 4 to the woman at the well? Jesus says to a woman by a well, He said to her, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come to draw water. I don't want you to miss the sign. Jesus is constantly telling people in the Gospel of John that he gives you more than you can handle, need, or ever want. Whether it's drink, food, life, death. Jesus declares, I am the one who gives, and I give, and I give, and I keep giving. Now each time, you'll notice, folks get fixated on the thing in the present rather than on the person. They get focused on the plan and not the eternal. What does John 10.10? I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. As a believer in Jesus Christ, we have access to unlimitless joy regardless of our circumstances. Notice too, it's not the abundance of the wine, but the quality of the wine. The master of ceremony says, this is the best stuff I've ever tasted. What are you doing? Alexander McLaren put it this way. He says, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ keeps the best till the last. His gifts become sweeter every day. And you'll finally come to the end where you'll say, thou hast kept the good wine until now. And then finally, I want you to see the Savior who is our joy. 
I want you to see the Savior who is our joy. So there's the setting of joy. There's the setback of joy. There's the source of our joy. But as we come to the table of the Lord, notice the Savior who is our joy. Jesus finishes up by saying in verse 11, these words, when it says here in verse 11, this is the first of his signs Jesus did at Canaan and Galilee and manifested his glory. Manifested his glory. Now stop and think about that as we come to the table of the Lord this morning. I want you to think with me what this is all supposed to mean. John says this is a sign. He says it's meant to tell us something about Jesus. It's to make us believe and have joy. And remember what Jesus used to make, remember I told you if you're writing your Bibles, he used water from purification pitchers. Now you need to know what that meant. This is the place where folks would go to be reminded of their sin and shortcomings. Before Jews could be ceremonially clean, they had to go to these pitchers of purification water and they had to dip the right hand into the water and then take a picture, scoop it up and pour it over your left hand and then wash your sin away, your sinness away so you were clean to then go and be in the party and not make anybody else unclean. If you go to the Western Wall of Israel today, if you go to a good synagogue today, there is a pitcher of purification water there present. I've watched them do it. It's there. This is what they were using. So this is where folks would be reminded of their sin and their shortcomings. And now the joy had run out because the wine is gone. And they, you could go to the picture and get clean for a bit, but then you had to go back again. Jesus comes and actually turns the reminder of sin into a place of celebration. That freedom from sin has come and it tastes better than anything. Cheap, temporary, fading, drowning out your sorrows, running from them or pretending they are not there always leads to, Journey got it right, the, the, the rock group. I'm all out of love. I'm so lost without you. They did get it right. That's everybody in the world. There's never enough love. But Jesus, Jesus has come. <laughs> He's the better wine. He's the one who makes us clean, fills us up and makes us whole. How? By taking our place. And that gives him glory. It gives God glory. And what does that result in? His disciples believed in him. They started to see Jesus is so much better than a wedding party. Jesus brings life where there is death. And you've got to admit, <laughs> I'm all out of. I've got nothing but embarrassment to offer. There's the old Christian song. Fill my cup, Lord. Fill it up, Lord. Come and quench this thirsting of my soul. Do you get it? Do you see what this sign is all about, this passage? What John wants you and me to get and understand and to be awestruck by? That at a wedding with his family and his people, with people looking for joy, reminded they are sinners, in the face of embarrassment and unable to have enough, Jesus displays his godness. All we read about in chapter 1 is here on display because Jesus God in the flesh, creator with power of creation, tells us, I have come to make you pure. So as we come to the table of the Lord, let me ask you this. Are you looking for joy in all the wrong places? This is sometimes when I really do wish I could roll down a mirror behind me and let you all stare at yourselves. 
as you wrestle with personal questions. A young man who had tasted most of what the world has to offer said to a Christian preacher, My God, is this all there is to life? Do you know how many times I've had people tell me that? Do you have religion? I'm going to tell you, it's going to profit you nothing. Folks, listen to me. Christless religion meets some of your needs, might make you feel better about yourself for a time, even help you to drown out your sorrows and seem to make you happy, but Christless religion will never offer you the cure of your greatest need, sin. Don't be one of those who've bought into the gospel of the world. Party. Yes, that's what I want. I don't want to deal with life. I don't want to deal with God. I don't want to change. Everyone and everything should change for me. I just want to have a great time. But the problem with this way of thinking is that it's, not, it's simply not true and it never lasts. Or do you have Christ? He alone can quench the hunger and thirst of your heart. He alone can put a song in your mouth that not even angels can sing. Notice what Mary says. Do whatever he says. The greatest joy of a Christian is to have Christ's joy. That's where true joy is found, where safety is found. Let me ask you this. Are you afraid to ask Jesus for joy? Are you afraid to ask Jesus for joy? Michael Horton puts it like this. Because we have been crucified, buried, and raised with Jesus, we are no longer under the tyranny of sin. Let me ask you this. Do you live your life in the joy of His supply? David Platt put it like this. There is indescribable joy, deep satisfaction, and an eternal purpose in dying to ourself and living for Christ. Church, listen to me. Money doesn't satisfy. Fame doesn't help your self-esteem. Power doesn't help you feel safe. Stuff doesn't take away your cravings. People don't stop you from feeling lonely or safe. Nothing, no one will give you safety, value, purpose, meaning, freedom, peace, and joy other than Jesus Christ. And we come to the table of the Lord with this question. Has Jesus changed your life into the wine of salvation? Jesus transformed water. Meant to remind people of their sin. The place where I had to go to try and deal with it, but constantly be reminded that it was never going to be enough. They would end up there again, empty, dirty, unable, always in fear. But Jesus gives this wedding and you and I a glimpse of why he had come. I have come that you might have life and joy and forgiveness and hope. It's to be transformed by Jesus. You see, he who knows no sin died for us sinners. These folks washed in water to try and feel clean for a day. This morning, will you wash in the blood of Jesus and be clean for eternity? Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this opportunity now to put an exclamation point on this by observing the Lord's Supper. Oh, Father God, speak to us through this. In Jesus' name, amen.